0: historians and also my professor Dr. Dane Morrison. My name is Christina and this is Up History. This story we talk about a little tidbit from history. That's super fucked up. So as you heard in that different introduction, we have a special listener to this episode. Welcome, Dr. Dane Morrison. I am taking an American Revolutions class this semester for grad school, and we were able to choose any sort of project that we wanted to, as long as it pertained to history of some sort during the revolution. So I decided, because I'm an overachiever and a masochist, apparently, that I wanted to analyze the women. In Alexander Hamilton's life, compare how they're depicted in Lin Manuel Miranda's musical sensation to the actual history that we have of them. And of course, I have some thoughts. You are going to learn a lot about me today, Doctor Morrison. So sorry in advance. I, I, to be fair, I did give you a warning at the end of class last week. So most people know about Alexander Hamilton and, by extension, the women in his life from the 2015 musical, which premiered on Disney Plus July 4th weekend 2020, which is how most people were able to see it. That is how I was able to see it. Admittedly, I was like many people and didn't really know much specifically about Hamilton and the people in his life at that point. That was about six months before I started this podcast. And I I think that I was just about to start going back to School for History and the American Revolution was not what I spent my time learning and researching about i was obsessed with the connecticut witch trials at that time and talking shit about king james the first slash six although i do have to say that american history is now one of my areas of interest and research not just in relation to the witch trials that happened here i i think it's really interesting and uh like important to know the actual history and acknowledge the mythology Of the American Revolution that stemmed from it. But back in 2020, I had very little knowledge, and I was still a sweet summer child. So when Hamilton came out, my little former theater kid with a deep love of history heart was so excited. And I was even more excited because I was learning something new on top of it, but like in a fun way. And if you've listened to me at all before, you know that learning history in a fun way is like literally why I started this podcast. And then I watched it and I fell in love with the depiction of these real life people, the, the true story of these women who were strong and passionate about changing the world and, and having a, a modicum of control over their lives, whether it was choosing who to marry or speaking up for women's rights or just being able to have an affair if they wanted to. Um, and uh, well, and then I, I looked up some stuff about these people. Um, or should I should I say characters? And here we are. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and practice your oh good God, what the fuck faces. So let's start by talking about the play. For any of you who might not be familiar with it, I'm not gonna talk about the politics that the women aren't involved in too much or like the ones that they aren't really influenced by. So not much about the feuding between like Hamilton and Jefferson or Hamilton and Burr or Hamilton and Madison or just really like anyone else in the play other than the women uh, and his lover. I mean, friend, John Lawrence. That's maybe a conversation for another day if I ever decide to do another part or parts more likely the relationship between Hamilton and Jefferson alone and all like the background hypocrisy. And that is a full multi-hour episode in and of itself. And this script is already at 35 pages and I still have to write a little bit more of it. So I'm also not going to really talk about the casting of the play. If you expected me to be like, Angelica wasn't black and Eliza wasn't Asian, damn it. Like, yeah, that's that's the whole point. They were trying to make it ethnically diverse. Um, (laughs) I do also want to say it's going to sound like I'm shitting on the play and to be fair it's going to sound that way because I, I am but I don't hate the play I think it's very entertaining it's a good story it's a good piece of historical fiction because it's fiction regardless of what Chernow and Miranda think um I enjoyed the same way that I enjoy the other Bolin girl, which I talked about extensively in like my Anne episode. The play Hamilton portrays history in a way that makes it entertaining and approachable for today's audience. The things that the play did for the United States was amazing. It was released on Disney Plus in 2020. It was an election year. And the play got a lot of young people interested in politics. It got a lot of people to want to go vote and to pay attention to what was happening. And it got a lot of people interested in history. And this revolutionary hip hop musical. It, it's, it's amazing. Um, when my friend and I went down to Philadelphia for that conference in October, we couldn't figure out what music to listen to because we have like very different music tastes. So we listened to Hamilton in the background, almost the whole way down at, for like eight hours. Cause we got stuck in the New Jersey turnpike and it was just hell incarnate. I love this play and I love what it inspired in people. But I'm not going to say it doesn't have its issues, some of which I will talk about today, um, some of which I will save for another time if I do more episodes, and and some of which is not really like my place to talk about as someone who is not a member of affected communities. So for that, I will include some other videos and articles in the description that talk about it better than I ever could. One video that I especially enjoyed is by a small YouTube creator, Hiko Nico Notebook, that talks about a lot of things. But one of the most poignant parts that they made was this issue of like having hip hop and marginalized actors portray the story of white men who are arguably responsible historically for that marginalization, which provides an alternative interpretation how most people have viewed the casting and musical choices. So the link for that, again, is in the description. They have another one uh, as well that I'll link that questions how revolutionary Hamilton is. So I am going to shit on Hamilton. But uh, this is me like spraying a little bit of potpourri first and like laying down some some toilet paper. Uh, I am, however going to outright shit on Ron Chernow's book. It is highly problematic. And it just completely like deifies Hamilton and and plays down a lot of the terrible things that he did. And it's almost like those parents whose children can never do anything wrong. You know, it's always someone else's fault. Uh, Often for Chernow, that is the women surrounding Hamilton. Um, I'm not gonna say it's not a great source. It pulls from a lot of historical sources, but it does also kind of cherry pick some of it, which to be fair, a lot of historians do that. But my my favorite thing that he does is when he quotes letters and then you go and look at the actual letter, not just the quotes that he pulled from it because they're all available online. Uh, every letter pretty much that is available between Hamilton and anyone uh, is pretty much available online. So you can go look them all up. And uh, when, when you read the entire letter, not just the parts that turn out pulled from it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's not really what he meant by that at all now that I have context. (laughs) And Trino seems to take Alexander kind of at face value of what he says being fact, even though people are like, notoriously unreliable narrators about themselves. And I'm gonna say that if the play has issues, many of them, not all of them, but many of them have their foundation with this book. I'm not alone on this. I read an article about Ishmael Reed, who wrote this play called The Haunting of Lynn Manuel Miranda, which was funded by Toni Morrison. And it's about the play Hamilton, where Lynn Manuel Miranda is a character who is confronted by actual history. And he says, Ishmael Reed says, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with him, that we can't fully blame. Lin Manuel Miranda, because he isn't a historian. He doesn't try to portray himself as one. He read an extensive biography about Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow and used that as inspiration for this play. And to further defend Lin Manuel Miranda, he said he wanted historians to take the play seriously. And in this attempt to do so, even asked Ron Chernow to be the historical consultant for the play and got like, seal of approval from this dude who wrote like an 800 plus page biography about Alexander Hamilton. Now Miranda made some artistic decisions that I have problems with. He is not completely guilty in, in this. Um, But Ishmael Reed said in, in his article that perhaps the true villain of Hamilton is not Burr or Jefferson. But Ron Chernow. <laughs> and I don't think I would take it that far personally, but it is it is problematic. And I'm gonna point it out at times. So, anyway, total rant aside now, I just want you to keep that in mind, especially if you're a fan of the play, because I too am a fan of the play and respect it for what it is, but also would like to point out that it is problematic. So let's talk about the play. Let's give like a little synopsis, if you will, okay? So The play begins by introducing Alexander Hamilton. He is a bastard, orphan, son of a whore, and a Scotsman who grew up in the Caribbean, an immigrant. When he was 10, his father abandoned him and his mother, known only as a whore, died when he was 12. At the end of the opening number, we learned that there are three mysterious women who were in love with him. We learned later that the first two of these women are Angelica and Eliza Schuyler. So Angelica is the oldest sister. And all the boys want her. But she is a strong, independent woman who doesn't need a man. So not just any man will do. She needs a man who has a mind because she's going to change the world. When she meets Thomas Jefferson, she's going to convince him to include women in the Declaration of Independence because girl power. Yes, queen insert other inspirational feminist phrases here. So Eliza Hamilton is her slightly younger sister who seems to look up to Angelica and follow in her footsteps. But when we follow in someone's footsteps, we often can become lost in their shadows, right? I bet you did not know that I was a poet that came straight from my brain. Eliza is beautiful. She has a great mind. But Angelica will always outshine her. Oh, and then there's also Aunt Peggy, who is an annoying child. That's all we see of her is this like annoying child that seems to be 12 years old complaining that daddy isn't going to like what they're doing. So in 1780, in the middle of the Revolutionary War, there's a ball. And this is when Eliza Schuyler meets Alexander Hamilton. Angelica actually meets him first, but Eliza is kind of like, hey girl, dibs on that one. So Angelica introduces the two of them. They immediately fall in love and they're married within the month. And then... Then you find out that Angelica is keeping a dark secret. See, when she met Alexander first, he hit on her. Because from his verses in the previous song, he just wants to marry Skyler's sister so that he's set up with money. And he does not care which one Angelica happens to be the first one that he meets. And he's smooth as hell, or at least he's supposed to be smooth as hell. If a guy walked up to me and his first words to me were like, you strike me as a woman who's never been satisfied. Um... <laughs> I mean, I'd like to say that I would like come up with some witty response or like punch him in the dick because of feminism. But uh, s- realistically, I probably just like glare at him until he walked away or say the most awkward thing I could to make him just feel really weird so that he leaves. This is coming from the girl that a guy once hit on me in a club by telling me that he liked my glasses. And then I awkwardly stared at him and said, thanks. I need them to see. And then deadpanned him until he felt so awkward. He walked away. It is honestly still one of my proudest moments. And it was like 10 years ago. Uh, Anyway, Hamilton walks up to Angelica and is like, you strike me as a woman who's never been satisfied. And she's like, excuse me, I, I think you better walk the fuck away before this woman actually strikes you. And he's like, oh, I've never been satisfied. I thought you might be the one to do it. And she's like, hmm, intrigued. My name is Angelica. And he's like, ooh, I'm Alexander. And she's like, hmm, where's your family from? And then he runs away. But this is enough. This is enough to let her know that this is the guy that she's been looking for. This is the dude with the mind who came on practically nagging her and then ran away. But it doesn't matter because she's in love. But remember, Eliza called dibs? And Angelica realizes. She's the oldest daughter of a man who has no son. So it's her responsibility to make sure that her family is okay. And he's only interested in her because she's wealthy and she loves her sister so much that she will sacrifice herself and all her happiness and and will accept that she will just never get no satisfaction, even though she tries and she tries and she tries. She just can't get no. No, no, no hey, hey, hey. So Angelica ends up marrying this rich, boring dude and goes to London and Eliza gets pregnant. She is the good wife doing her good wifely duties, popping out a ton of sounds. But it doesn't matter because Alexander will never be happy. Nothing will ever be enough. Eliza literally begs him to just let her be part of, of his life, to just let her in, let her be part of the narrative. And that would be enough. But for him, it isn't enough. Nothing will ever be enough and the entire time you find out he's engaging in an emotional affair with her sister like angelica would sacrifice her happiness and satisfaction but emotional affairs often hurt just as much if not more than a physical one and this is an intense emotional affair that is depicted in this play the lyrics say at one point and there you are an ocean away do you have to be an ocean away thoughts of you subside then i get another letter and i cannot put the notion away And then if you're watching the play right after that line, that Angelica and Hamilton are singing in harmony, Eliza walks in and he hides the letter because he knows that what he's doing is wrong. And then Angelica goes on like, boy, did you just sexed me through punctuation? Like, I know she's supposed to be all like, ooh, talk nerdy to me and like, honestly, same, but like, this is a bit of a stretch. And I was an English major. And an editor for multiple publications. But, all right, moving on. Uh, and then, and then she comes back to America. And Eliza is all like, let's all go to New York. And Angelica's like, yeah, Alexander, let's go to New York where you can screw your courage to my sticking place. I mean, the, the sticking place, silly me. <laughs> I'm misquoting my path. And, and Eliza is like, yeah, Let's go to New York. I know I know a park that has a lake, and we can bang by it after the kids go to sleep <laughs> and And Alexander is like, "No, I couldn't possibly be distracted from what I need to do something about Congress because politics are interesting, and I'm important. I don't have time for anything, even sex with my wife, but I do, however, have time for sex with this." super hot chick named Mariah Reynolds that comes to me one night in a red dress and rubs all up on me as she tells me the sob story about how her husband abused her and abandoned her because Hamilton has some weird kinks I guess about girls that are helpless and then he begins having an affair while Eliza and Angelica are in New York but then drama because Mariah's husband comes back and finds out what happened and is like oh yeah that's fine you can keep fucking my wife but you'll have to pay me for her time. Because she's my wife, and therefore my property, and now I know where Andrew Tate got it all from. And Alexander agrees, and he keeps (laughs) sleeping with her, but we we don't see her again, so we don't know for how long this lasts. Um, Mariah Reynolds is what we who have studied theater and literature call a plot device. But then... An indeterminable amount of time later, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Aaron Burr find out that there's been about $1,000 that Hamilton has been mysteriously funneling to this random dude Reynolds. And that $1,000 is equivalent to like $30,000 a day. So it is a large chunk of change that is just like, hmm, why is this happening? And so the three guys confront Hamilton and are like, you're doing something fishy, Mr. Secretary of Treasury. Uh, Speculation? Corruption? insider trading, bribery, extortion, embezzlement, other economic terms that can be found at businessfraudprotection.org. And he comes clean about the entire affair, uh, but is worried that now everyone will find out. So Hamilton, a super wordy dude that sex people through commas alone, writes the Reynolds pamphlet. Alexander Hamilton had a torrid affair and he wrote it down right there. And I mean, he wrote it all down, like, like all of it, like dirty details, including letters from Mariah herself. And Eliza is humiliated and she is justifiably angry And she burns all of his letters and is like, you built me palaces out of paragraphs when really it was just a house of cards. You have no right to me anymore. How fucking dare you? I hope that your entire life goes up in flames. I'm taking myself out of this narrative that you never even wanted me to be a part of in the first place. But it's I who no longer wants to be part of it anymore. And I was watching it like, yes, thank you. You are finally standing up for yourself. I am so proud of you, baby girl. He does not deserve you. You do not need him. Move on with your life. Be happy with your many children. And then their son dies in a duel defending their father's honor, which is a terrible reason to die because Hamilton is fucking awful. And then grief brings them back together and then politics 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 alexander is shot in a duel by aaron burr and dies and eliza and angelica are with him as he takes his last breaths and eliza spends the rest of her unnaturally long life for the time telling his story and other people's stories strictly because hamilton would have wanted her to tell these stories and she raises funds for the Washington Monument because Alexander was so close to Washington and she speaks out against slavery because Hamilton was against slavery and then she opens up an orphanage because Alexander was an orphan and in every child's eye she sees him and she lives for another 50 years when the life expectancy is like 50 years and she spends the rest of her life Telling the story of the man who always mistreated her and never picked her and never included her and cheated on her and humiliated her. But, But it's important for her specifically to keep telling his story because reasons so there we have the women of Hamilton the only importance of these women is their connection to Alexander Hamilton there's there's nothing that they do that does not revolve around him his unnamed whore mother uh, Peggy, the child who because she has no relationship in the play is in it for literally like one scene. Mariah, the wrecker. Angelica, the self-sacrificing sister slash other woman by way of commas. And Eliza, the doormat pick me girl who spends her entire life dedicated to this man who would not ever choose her even in death. And this is not a great depiction of women if you think about it like at first when you watch it and you listen to the soundtrack you're like yeah Angelica girl power yeah Liza stand up to him yeah Mariah you're very attractive they are very lucky men but it's not great and also, not accurate, which is why we're here. So, let's talk about it. As far as sources go, I'm mostly using the book that Lynn Memo Miranda used as inspiration and his source material, which is Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton, which I will be shitting on extensively. Uh, I'm also using the book Eliza Hamilton The Extraordinary Life and Times of the Wife of Alexander Hamilton by Tilar J. Mazzio. I liked this book, but it was hard for me to really get into it as a biography. And unfortunately, it's like the only real biography about Eliza because I couldn't get into it because it's a narrative history, meaning it's basically at times like if fiction and nonfiction like had a baby. So they researched a lot, but then at times says things like Eliza rubbed her swollen belly as she gazed out of the window and wondered what would the future hold while fearing for his safety and a tear ran down her cheek. A solitary tear. And like, how do you know that? Like, no one was there giving a play by play that at all. Like, this book also doesn't really like cite everything. So it'll say things like, all evidence points to blah, blah. But then it doesn't offer as to what the evidence is at all. (laughs) So it's, it's a good, like, Masio makes some really, really good uh, arguments, but they're also flawed. Um, I also have the book that lin Mom Miranda wrote about the background and process of writing Hamilton. So I'll touch on the reasons why he says he made some of the decisions that he made and changing the narrative. Um, and then there's a few other books and sources that as always will be in the description box. Uh, but all this to say the sources are not the best. So keep an eye out for probably the eventual book that I will write about this now that I'm fucking obsessed with it. So let's start our analysis, if you will, with the unnamed mother, the whore. So the first 12 words of Hamilton are how does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman, right? So by that description alone, it seems like Alexander Hamilton's mother was maybe a sex worker who had an illegitimate child out of wedlock, which is known to happen historically with sex workers and his father was a Scottish man. This creates this story Right, that that Hamilton came from nothing, the bottom of the bottom, and he was able to build himself up into someone that that should have been president if another woman hadn't gotten in the way, which we will talk about. It's it's a great story, but also wildly inaccurate. So Alexander's mother was a woman named Rachel, a name Fossette, the whore. Uh, I cringe every time I say that but it is the terminology used in the play and historically. So before we explore if under the dictionary definition of whore, there's a description that says Alexander Hamilton's mother comma unnamed. I want to talk a little bit about her background because I think that that really contributes to the kind of person that she was. Alexander Hamilton's son, John described Rachel as a woman of superior intellect, elevated sentiment and unusual grace in which Alexander was indebted for his genius. Even though he never met her, John would have had to gather this impression from Alexander, who seemed to have respected and adored his mother, even though turnout seems to disagree, which we'll get to. Uh, Rachel's father was a man named John Fossette, who was a physician. He was also a French Huguenot, which is kind of just like a sect of Protestantism. So to go back like 150 years before Hamilton was born, Henry IV of France had passed what was called the Edict of Nantes, which ensured religious freedom and toleration perpetually and said that this would never be revoked, which was probably really awkward when not even a hundred years later in 1685, it was revoked. This is when John Fossett emigrated to the West Indies. He met a British woman named Mary Uppington. The atmosphere in the West Indies seemed to be a little bit more laid back than Europe because while John and Mary eventually married, they did so after having a couple children, they owned a small sugar plantation, which the West Indies was like super well known for. And as well as owning um, a few enslaved people as well, Mary and James had at least seven children, but only two of them survived. Uh, Anne and Rachel in 1740, Mary appealed for a legal separation from her husband at this point. And her, cl- her oldest daughter was already married and moved along. So it was just Rachel and her mother just making a go of it. Part of the terms of this legal separation was that Mary was disinherited. So when John died in 1745, Rachel inherited all of his property, which made her a super eligible bachelorette. And her mother pretty much like presented her on a silver platter to this Danish man named Johann Michael Lavian, who was very risky with money. He wanted to be this like big, successful, large plantation owner. And he wasn't good at it, but he like danced in dressed really fancy and like silk and gold and made himself seem like he was really successful to Rachel's mom. And she basically forced Rachel to marry this guy who was significantly older than her 16 years. And it was not a happy marriage. The next year she gave birth to a little boy named Peter. But within five years, Rachel just left. She didn't want to be with her husband anymore. And I can only imagine how he treated her and why she didn't want to be with him based off of what he did next. So (sighs) Lavian was so mad that she left him that he accused her of uh, committing adultery, which I mean, that happens. But the thing is, is that because of this obscure Danish law, he was able to implement because he was Danish, he had her imprisoned in the local fort that doubled as the jail where people mainly enslaved people who acted out would be whipped, branded, castrated, shackled and entombed in the dungeon. And that's just the stuff that was documented. So who knew what else actually really went on there? Right. And she was there for months and was the only woman, according to the records that Chernow looked out, that was imprisoned there for alleged adultery. And again, for months in solitary confinement in a 10 by 13 cell. And Ron Chernow argued in his book on page 11 that because we don't have records of her outright refusing it, it had to be true. Um which sort of just like sets a tone for me for the for the rest of the book. And if this is what Hamilton was based off of, I'm not completely surprised that I feel the way I feel about Hamilton when it comes to how the women are betrayed. So Lavian not only had Rachel imprisoned because he was insulted that she dared to leave him. But he also said that he hoped that by being imprisoned for months, that she would come out of it and would be the wife that she was supposed to be and live with him, as was meet and fitting. And surprisingly, when she was finally released, she didn't and she left him for good. Unfortunately, their son Peter was kind of collateral damage of this because when she left Johann Michael Lavian, she left Peter as well. And this is something that Chernow like really speaks negatively about. And while there is part of me that completely understands and agrees, I also wonder what kind of resources she would have had. And what her husband, who I am very confident in saying was most likely abusive would have done to her. I mean, later on, she didn't even attend the actual divorce hearing that they eventually had, because she was so afraid of him. Now, unlike her mother, Rachel did not get a legal separation or divorce at the time. She just left. Divorces were very hard to obtain, especially in the West Indies. They were usually really expensive and really drawn out whole procedures. So Rachel just like let the newspapers know and let the creditors know that she was leaving, settled her debts and left in 1750. She most likely stayed with her older sister and mother and just kind of tried to move on with her life. Eventually she met James Hamilton, who unsurprisingly is Alexander Hamilton's father. Um, Alexander Hamilton's grandson, Alan McLean Hamilton, described him as a dreamer, who was unsuccessful in really anything he did, but he was content, and his chief happiness seemed to be in the society of his beautiful, talented wife, who was in every way intellectually his superior. Which, I mean, we've already talked about in the quick synopsis that he left when Alexander was 10. That is an accurate thing. So I don't know how true that actually could have been. Perhaps this shows how Hamilton really built up his father to be this, like, great guy. Turnow kind of hints at this when he talks about Alexander um, and how he used to sort of, like, daydream that his father wasn't this, like, deadbeat or failure or someone who never found success. He was actually an aristocrat in disguise who was just waiting for his moment to come into his true identity um which then by extension would mean that hamilton was part of the aristocracy as well so james father was also named alexander hamilton and he was a laird in scotland and they literally lived in a castle which is where alexander got the whole like aristocracy thing from but alexander hamilton the grandfather had a ton of children. So James, not being the oldest, like he wouldn't really get anything from his father. So he tried to sort of build up his own life. He had no formal education. So in the 1740s he emigrated to the West Indies to try and get into the plantation culture down there, like Lavian and just like Lavian. He wasn't very successful. He became a government official instead When he met Rachel, it seems like he wasn't totally off put by getting with a woman who ran away from her husband. It it was common in West Indies for men to take mistresses and all. And this was just uh, another woman, you know, because she didn't have a legal divorce, they couldn't get married, but they lived like a married couple. Rachel even called herself Rachel Hamilton. And like her mother, they had several children, two of which survived into adulthood, Alexander and his brother, James Jr., Now, he also was born to Rachel and James in 1755, although apparently he would sometimes say he was born in 1757, but every record that can be found says 55. He was born in Nevis. One minister in 1727 described Nevis as settled by whole shiploads of pickpockets, whores, rogues, vagrants, thieves, sodomites, and other filth and cutthroats of society who were not bad enough for the gallows and yet too bad to live among the virtuous countrymen at home. Uh, Rachel James and their children lived there in Nevis in a waterfront property that she inherited from her father for a while, and they owned at least three and as many as five people who were enslaved because they were left to Rachel by her mother when she died. Rachel most likely had a very big hand in her children's education because most likely due to their illegitimate birth, they were most likely not allowed to be formally educated in the Anglican schools that were most common. Uh, Chernow also speculates that Hamilton was most likely educated by some of the small Jewish community that lived there. And I keep saying most likely because it's hard to find any actual records, but based on later writings of what's known in the community, we can speculate that this is most likely what happened. But regardless, they seem... They seem like they were in a good place. Like Rachel's past with Lavian was behind her. It had been years since she even heard from him. And Hamilton's past unsuccessful pursuits were okay. He was working and he had this like successful job and they were all seemingly happy and just sort of living their life, building up their little family. And then Lavian reared his fucking head again because life had not been going well for him. He had to sell his last plantation and was working as an overseer and renting out his people that were enslaved. And he met a woman in the late 1750s who was not okay with him still being married. So Lavian finally, after like nine years, filed for divorce. And boy, did he have a lot to say. So on February 26, 1759, he filed his official divorce summons. He said that Rachel was a scarlet woman who was living a life of sin. And this started when they were still together. Because remember, those were the grounds of him getting her thrown into jail. And he addresses that in the divorce decree that he sent her to jail hoping that she would learn her lesson. And she clearly didn't because she left him nine years before and had several children that he was definitely not the father of. But he mentions Peter and how he's been taking care of her only legitimate child, like how dare dad have to take care of his child. He writes that she completely forgot her duty and let husband and child alone and instead had given herself up to whoring with everyone. He then demanded as part of the divorce proceedings that she wouldn't get anything from him if he died before her because he didn't want her to seek to take possession of the estate and therefore not only acquire what she ought not to have, but also take away from his child and give it to her whore children. And because Rachel was afraid of what would happen if she went to court to contest it with Lavian, like, I don't know, maybe getting thrown into jail again? because of some obscure Danish law that she didn't go and refute it and therefore admitted to everything with her silence, of course. And so there we have it. That is where the accusation of Rachel being a whore comes from, from this bitter, abusive, insecure little man who is as useful as a white chocolate teapot on a hot summer day in my home state that festering hell that is Florida. And now the masses only know this about her. So that Alexander Hamilton sounds like a man who overcame less than desirable birth story when his mother was a victim, who was very much in love with his father, and given no options. And then Chernow goes on to defend Lavian for all of his actions and accusations by saying, quote, in his defense, Rachel had relinquished responsibility for Peter and forced Lavian to bring the boy up alone. Also, Lavian subsequently witnessed legal documents for the Lightons, who was Rachel's in-laws through her sister, suggesting her own family may have seen her as less than blameless. And while, yes, she did have at least one technical extramarital affair, the West Indies were full of extramarital affairs and mistresses and paramours and whatever else you want to fucking call it. I mean, I can also say that Lavian was in a relationship with another woman and therefore also having an extramarital relationship, whether it was physical or not, which it was most likely physical. But we don't persecute men for those things historically. Sorry, I'm like having really bad like Henry VIII flashbacks right now and like Katherine Howard and all of that like sorry Uh, uh, and again this man abused her and put her in jail for seemingly baseless accusations to make her more obedient and submissive as a wife. And I'm interested to see the kind of language that we use later on when other parents abandon their children, because it sounds a little bit like Chernow is is a misogynist apologist here. Um, But I might just be projecting because this story enrages me. So on June 25th, 1759, their divorce was official. Lavian was allowed to marry again, but put a stipulation in his divorce proceedings that Rachel was never allowed to get married again. So even though at this point she'd been with James Hamilton for almost 10 years, they would never officially be allowed to be husband and wife, which made it a lot easier for him to leave her a few years later. So James Hamilton had to go on a business assignment in Christiansted in 1765, and they moved into a house. That was literal blocks away from the jail that she had been imprisoned in. And because she was back in this town where everyone knew her past, she couldn't say that she was Mrs. Hamilton. And this was her husband and their children. And then once this case that James was working on was over, he just left. We don't know why. Maybe he heard too much while he was... There in Christian said about her past. Maybe he had a better opportunity elsewhere. Maybe he met another woman. Alexander Hamilton thought maybe he couldn't afford to take care of them anymore. We will never know. We have no idea. But what I do know is that there is not any negative language about him abandoning Rachel Alexander and James Jr. in this Chernow book. Because you know, when a father abandons their children, it's totally fine. I mean, isn't that the societal expectation that men don't have to have any requirement to be involved in their children's lives other than the act of conceiving them? And those that do have parts in their children's lives are diamonds. And the women are truly blessed to have a parent that's so involved. And it's astounding how little society has changed. Rachel, this amazingly strong woman, who was abandoned by her partner of almost 15 years, with two small children to take care of in the town in which she was completely disgraced in and abused in, gave a giant middle finger to everyone who doubted her and talked shit about her and opened up a shop selling foodstuff to plantation workers, which was incredibly rare for a woman to do. She also rented out her enslaved people to make extra income, which is a terrible reality of life in the West Indies. But Alexander was partially raised by enslaved people and had servants who were children around his age. And then two years later, just after New Year's of 1768, Rachel and Alexander became incredibly ill with a fever. And they spent the next few weeks in the same bed trying to overcome this together. And on February 19th, Rachel died, most likely holding Alexander in her arms. And because she was considered a fallen woman, a divorced woman with children out of wedlock, she was denied a Christian burial at the church and was instead buried on her sister's property. And upon her death, Johann Lavian reared his disgusting small head again and sued for all her assets on behalf of their son Peter, using the divorce documentation to justify it. And that, my friends, is the story of Rachel Fossette. Hamilton's mother, who overcame so much adversity and abuse and heartache, and yet Alexander Hamilton, who had two daughters and six sons on records, never named a child after his mother, but named one of his sons after his father, the man who abandoned him. And Ron Chernow says that this may hint at some residual bitterness that he may have had for his mother. And I don't understand how on earth he could be bitter towards her and not his father. Like Alexander was considered an orphan after his mother's death, and yet his father was very much alive and still living in the West Indies. I personally like to think a little bit better of Alexander Hamilton, which I'm sure is probably going to be surprising when I just continue to shit on him as we continue to tell this story. But I I think that maybe it's just because he only had two daughters, and he named one of them Eliza and one of them Angelica for his wife and his wife's sister who he was arguably in love with and i like to hope that if alexander had another daughter that he would have named her either after eliza's mother Catherine or his own mother rachel like i would hope that would be the case because rachel facette lavian hamilton doesn't deserve bitterness and resentment um (laughs) yeah Lynn manuel Miranda doesn't even mention Rachel in the book that he wrote about his thought process behind the musical, uh, so I can't even comment as to why he made the decision that he made um, because that's how little she matters to history because she's just a whore, right? Hmm. Yeah, I, I wish I could say that it gets better from here um, so let's move on and talk about the other women of Hamilton's life so for Hamilton, the play gets the next little bit correct for the most part. After his mother's death, um, even though his father's very much alive, he lives like an orphan with his brother. They move in with their cousins, Peter Lytton, but he ends up committing suicide. Some people say it's because of failed business in the West Indies. Others say it's because he was mentally ill. Um, after this, they didn't really have any family left. Pretty much everyone around them was dead except for their father who very much could have taken them in, uh, and yet didn't. Uh, but again, we we don't hear we hear much crap about that in, in the Chernow book, because men can do no wrong, right? <laughs> Am I crying? So six year old James became an apprentice to a carpenter, and Alexander became a clerk for a mercantile company that participated in the slave trade. And while he was working there, he lived with the Stevens family, where the rumors of Rachel being a whore continued because some people thought that Thomas Stevens was actually Alexander's father because he looked very similar to one of Thomas Stevens' sons. Then Chernow goes on to say that further evidence of this is because Alexander and Stevens' son, Edward, had similar personalities and beliefs. He said they were quick and clever, disciplined and persevering, fluent in French, versed in classical history, outraged by slavery, and mesmerized by medicine, which I didn't realize were qualities that can be inherited from a parent. I, I thought that that those were really just like in how you were raised and educated and seeing as they were from a similar place and even lived in the same home for a while. I wouldn't be surprised that they would have similarities. But what do I know about nature versus nurture? I am but a lowly woman. What am I doing out of the kitchen? Right, now? Also, Stevens was appalled when Lavian had uh, Rachel thrown into prison for infidelity. And there's absolutely no reason whatsoever that any man would be appalled by that other than the fact that he was one of those committing adultery with her right. Uh, and also according to turnout this justifies James Hamilton senior abandoning his children even after their mother died. I wish I was fucking making this up. While he was a clerk, he was writing a lot and published a few times. And these publications are what got him out of the West Indies. People donated to his education and he was able to move to New York in 1772. This does not make him an immigrant. He moved from one British colony to another British colony. It would have really been no different during that time of someone moving from Virginia to New York. But... That's besides the, the point. It's just a little pet peeve there of mine. And in yet another time, when a woman was the main reason why Hamilton was able to become Hamilton, the principal benefactor was his cousin Ann Benton, who was a sister of the cousin who committed suicide and like his mother was married to a man who was terrible with money and blamed her for all of his problems, especially when she inherited a bunch of money from her brother and her father that had a stipulation that her husband was not allowed to touch any of it. And then a hurricane came and made him completely bankrupt. And she left him. And he put out this like decree or whatever, that forbade her and her daughter from leaving the island. And uh, they left anyway. And went to New York and she gave Alexander power of attorney over her father's estates so that he could collect rent payments that allowed him to actually move and have the money to support himself to go to King's College and enlist in the army and become Washington's right hand man. Now, I'm not going to talk about all of that again. I'm going to save it for if I do more episodes in the future. But it is through this position in the army that he met his future wife, Eliza. So that is where we are going to stop today, my friends. I was planning on just uploading this as like one big mega episode, uh, but it's a lot. <laughs> I, I've, I'm i still researching. I am at 40 pages of this script and I still have more to write. So I'm going to stop it right here and then... Um, The next time I'll do mostly the Skylar sisters and then we'll do the whole concept of the Reynolds pamphlet. And then after I've uploaded all of the individual episodes that you can hear it, then I'll upload it as one uh, giant mega episode as well. Kind of like what I've done recently with the Troy episodes and with the Henry VIII episodes. So with that, thank you so much for listening today. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a review or joining my Patreon. All I want for Christmas is for you to join my Patreon, um, for as little as $2 a month. But that is my self-promotion aside. I hope that you have a wonderful holiday, and hopefully I'll see you next week before the new year, um, with the second installment of this episode. And if not, I will see you next year. Remember friends, history may be watching you. So don't fuck it up and don't send your wives to prison in the hopes that they will become better people. Because that's not how that fucking works. And that just makes you look like a terrible person. Okay, bye-bye.